for scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. It's on page 1157 in your pew Bible. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the splendor, for the glory of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd their flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation, robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. The second reading is from the New Testament, the book of John, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 28 on page 1646 in your pew Bible. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself only as a witness to the light. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The word of the Lord. 
Let's pray together this morning. Loving and gracious God, on a Sunday where we talk about joy, some of us may not feel very joyful. Lord, remind us of who you are and what we can find in your presence. And Lord, may we become people of joy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever felt longing? You longed for someone or something. Is that a familiar feeling to any of you? You felt that. Maybe it's, um, you know, something like today. I long for the New York Giants to win. We still have a chance. Maybe you long for uh, a meal that you like, or you long for this or that thing. Good things in themselves, but as much as I'd love to see the Giants win, this is not a thing of huge consequence. But there are things that we long for that are big and important, isn't it? Maybe it's the longing for the, the restoration of a relationship, or someone's healing. Maybe it's a longing to see a loved one again. Maybe it's the longing for a child to call home. Someone to be free from whatever it is that holds them down. Maybe it's a longing to go back in time and to say something differently. Or to do something a different way. We know that feeling, don't we? It pulls at our hearts. Feeling of longing. If we can get in touch with that feeling just a little bit, we might start to understand how the people in Jesus' day felt about the Messiah. Oh, you see it all through the prophets this language, this yearning, this longing for things to be made right. For injustices to be righted. For God's mercy to rain down. For goodness, for flourishing. For grace and love to define human relationships. That is a fundamental piece of all the prophets. Is a real longing. You know, because in in the prophet's day, in Jesus' day, all down through history to our day... Most of us, if we examine our hearts, we know that the world around us isn't quite right. St. Augustine, the great doctor of the church, said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. You see, all of us are made at our deepest level. It's how we're fashioned and created. We long for something. Beyond human relationships, beyond this world, we long for something deeper, something good, something right. And we see all around us every day people in pursuit of doing something about that feeling, don't we? Is it any wonder that rates of depression and anxiety are on the rise? Substance abuse, addiction rates, 
People who are more connected than ever before through technology, and yet we have the highest rates of loneliness that have ever been recorded. All of us feel this sense of longing. And the question for us today is, then what are you doing to fill it up? What are you reaching for? What are you pursuing to satiate the yearning that you and that I, that all of us have, that marks the human experience? What do we do with that longing? In Jesus' day, they longed for the Messiah. And the prophets longed for the Messiah, and they told of the Messiah, and the people longed for the Messiah, because they understood that the Messiah wasn't just an ordinary, everyday person, a a mighty ruler, someone who had, you know, um, great skills in battle, or someone with political acumen. They understood the Messiah to be God himself, who would step into human history, and who would love and care for his people in a way that no earthly ruler could. The people longed for that. They felt it in their bones. And imagine, if you will, with me, this man. We, we, we painted the picture, didn't we, last week? This guy who lives out in the desert. He wears camel hair. He eats locusts. And there was a resounding yum from the people of God here at St. Paul's when they heard that he ate locusts and wild honey. You long for that diet. And here he was, living out in the wilderness, preaching and baptizing people and preparing them. And in this figure of John the Baptist, we find all of the Old Testament prophets kind of find their completion. In this man whose sole purpose it is to prepare the way for someone who's coming. Now John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, we have another peek into this uh, enigmatic figure. You know, in the Gospels, there's not a whole lot that's recorded of him. We have a little bit at the, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He prepares the way. We see uh, Mary and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, have this beautiful interaction in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and then we have John's arrest and his beheading by Herod. But other than that, we have very little about John. And I think that's just how John would have wanted it. Because John's whole life, was not about himself. His whole life, remember the picture last week? It was the finger pointing towards someone else. His sole purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he shows up in the Gospel of John today, and the Gospel writer records this, that, you know, John the Baptist came, and there was a lot of confusion about who this man was. You see, in Jesus' day, there was this expectation that Elijah himself would come back. He was considered one of the greatest of the prophets. And if you remember, uh, in the Old Testament, he's what? Taken up into heaven in a chariot. He doesn't die, and so there was this expectation that he would return, that he would come back. And so where there's this fellow who's out in the, in the desert, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's baptizing which is something that only happened in the temple. 
It was a rite of purification, and, and it, it happened in the temple. But here's John with locusts' uh, wings and antennas stuck in his teeth, honey dripping down his face, out of the temple, taking these rituals and rites from the temple out to the people. And he's baptizing them to prepare them for someone who's coming. And so the good religious leaders get their hackles up. Because that's what happens with good religious leaders, isn't it? When they see things happening in a way that they don't like, or that goes against the rule book, they come out and they start to question this guy. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? Are Are you Elijah? No. Are you another one of the prophets? No. Then who are you? In other words, I think we can read that as, who do you think you are? And he says, I'm just the voice of someone crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then, I don't want us to miss this one phrase in the Gospel of John that he records. When they're asking him about who he is and what he's doing. John says, there's someone, there's someone standing among you. And you don't even know who it is. You can't even see him. It's not that they couldn't see him. You know what I mean. They couldn't see him. And he said, I'm not even worthy to get down and to undo his sandals. And this is a man, John the Baptist, that Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, that he was, there was no greater man born among women. So if John the Baptist, the greatest of all men born among women, is not worthy to untie his sandals, what kind of man is this? This sandal-wearing man. Here's the thing in the ancient world. Undoing sandals, that was the job of the lowliest slave. Because, you know, let's let's be real. Feet are grouse. Okay? Uh, in the ancient world and today, feet are just kind of disgusting. But in the ancient world, you know, they didn't have the nice lotions you could put on your feet. These disciples weren't going out getting pedicures. They didn't have that cool file that you could take the callus off your heel with. They didn't have any of that. These were stinky, dirty feet. And so you had the lowest of the slaves deal with the feet. People would come into a house, they'd come into the temple, and you would have slaves there whose their job it was to undo the sandals, to bathe the feet, to wash the feet, to make them clean, and then the person could be about their business. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the low. You see, friends, the Gospels, in ways both explicit and implied, are always telling us something about Jesus. And who he is. And how important he is. And John the Baptist, this great man, this great prophet. The one who bridges the old and the new. The one who Jesus says is the greatest born. Says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave for this man. We see all through the scriptures that relate to John the Baptist... That he had a longing, but coupled with that longing for the Messiah was this realization that the Messiah had come. And John the Baptist pointed everyone to this man who could fill the deepest longing in their heart. 
The man in whom they're yearning for a new world and a new way, for God's justice and righteousness, completely fulfilled in this man. The man where longing and reality and promise meet. So what does that mean for us? What's the so what? How should we live then in light of this? Yes, Jesus is important. Yes, we're supposed to, in a sense, be like John the Baptist and point others to him. But, you know, in the hecticness and the busyness of our lives and everything to which we must attend and those longings that all of us still do feel for things to be made right, what does it mean to live in light of the first coming of the Messiah and in anticipation of a second? What's that word you see on the screen? Joy. And we're not talking about our beautiful, wonderful administrative assistant who shares that great name. Joy. As with most good biblical words, it's been totally stripped of its power and force. We've talked about that a lot during Advent, haven't we? Because we, we talk about words like hope and peace and love and joy. All these words that are so easily bandied about, that are on our lips all the time. And yet when we come to Scripture, they're so rich and so full and nuanced. And often have a meaning that's completely divorced from the way that we use them in our everyday language. If you and I were to talk about joy or being joyful or rejoicing... Oh, we might, uh, you know, today when, when the Giants win, I might rejoice. If you have um, something that happens in your life, you feel joy. You see someone you haven't seen in a while. You hear a beautiful piece of music. You read a, a, a novel that you love. You might feel some sense of joy. It's not what the Bible means by joy. You see, the Bible says these enigmatic, very strange things about joy. I mean, how can the Apostle Paul, imprisoned in Rome, say, rejoice always? And again, I say what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Here's a clue. In the Bible, when the biblical author repeats something, he really, really wants you to understand it. Rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. And here's a man who is shackled in a dirty, dank Roman prison. How in the world can he say that? The prophet Isaiah in the 61st chapter, who's writing in the diaspora. The people of God have been taken captive. They're displaced from their homeland. And he talks about joy and delight in God. How is that possible? When the people of God are led in the exodus out of Egypt into the wilderness, what's one of the very first things they do before they start a long litany of complaints? But that's another sermon. Before that, what do they do? They rejoice. They're filled with joy. You know, in the Bible, there are different words in the Hebrew and the Greek used for joy. They have a different nuance, a different meaning. Like we might talk about, you know, contentment or happiness or joy or fulfillment. All words that might get at an aspect of joy. It's the same in the biblical languages. There are different words used for joy. One of the most common, most prevalent ways to talk about joy in the Bible 
is a sense of contentment and fulfillment that is completely divorced, completely, uh, totally not dependent on one's circumstances. You see, for us so often, isn't that how we measure joy? Joy when we're feeling well. Joy when we're in good health. Joy when we have a lot of money in the bank account. Joy when our friends and our family are around us. Joy when our sports team is doing well. Or, or joy when our particular candidate gets elected. All these circumstances that we look to, and we, say, we, we define joy by that. And yet scripture is totally different. It says joy doesn't depend on any of that. All of those things could happen, or none of those things could happen. And you and I can still be joyful. Why? How, you say? Because joy is a sense of promise. Hope. That there is one who loves us and who is with us despite the circumstances. There is one who accepts us and loves us regardless of what we have done. There is someone who loves us even when we can't love ourselves. You see, implied in joy, implied in joy is a confident trust in the one who can give joy. And that is God. So that's why Paul can say, even while he's in prison, rejoice always. Because it doesn't matter where you are or what is happening to you. Because God is good all the time. And God loves us regardless of what is happening around us. And John the Baptist, even when he's in prison, totally set up. And when Herod goes and has him beheaded, all through those narratives you find someone totally at peace. Why? Because he knew the man to whom he pointed And friends, that is the only way that you and I can have joy, a sense of contentment, a nourishment of that longing in our soul, a relief for that yearning, when we look past the finger of John the Baptist to the man to whom he pointed. And when we know that man, we can have joy at all times, in all places, and in all things. Because the source of our joy is not anything around us. The source of our joy is God himself. Amen? Amen. Amen.